it's good to be back. At least I'm back. My wife, Marta, was back. And uh, now she's not back. She's actually in uh, South Africa. We got back on Sunday night from the missions conference uh, last week, and then she left on Tuesday. So she's there now, and uh, we're missing her terribly, of course. But I heard you had a a great Sunday last week. Uh, We had a good Sunday. We were part of something they call the Impact Conference down there in North Carolina, and uh, it's a kind of missions conference, and I just love missions conferences. I can't wait for the day we have a missions conference here at uh, Cornerstone. I I think when Christians get together and they talk about taking the gospel out and serving and uh, loving the lost, uh, going and doing, it's it's always going to be good uh, because that's just what we were made to do. We were made uh, for, for mission. And this Sunday is a kind of special Sunday, too, in that we're going to have a State of the Church talk this evening. This is my uh, first one at CBC, and I'm looking forward to it. We're going to get together and just talk about the church, where we've been, where we're going, all that kind of stuff, vision, vision. And I thought because it's that kind of Sunday, I could take advantage of that and talk with you a little about one of my biggest prayers for us here at CBC. So we're going to get back to our introduction to the Old Testament uh, series. But this week, I guess you could call this a vision for Cornerstone Bible Church 2021. And I say I guess only because I don't really love the word vision, actually. Because sometimes when you talk about vision and, and the church, it feels like people are expecting you to say all this kind of radical, new, innovative, big kind of stuff like Uh, we want a Starbucks in the lobby, or uh, we want to grow by 7,000 people in the next two weeks. And uh, I like Starbucks, and I love growth. But sometimes I wonder if people's expectations for vision, what makes an exciting vision, is more influenced by American culture, honestly, than it is the Bible. We like big, we like fresh, we like new which is why I don't really always love the word vision, but it is important that we stop and we think about what we're doing and why we're doing it and where we're going and how we're doing it as a church because uh, the local church is a really big deal. This is uh, an important institution. I know it looks ordinary and sometimes feels ordinary, but the local church is really extraordinary. For one thing, because of all the things that God does through faithful local churches, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. You go to a local church, a, a, just a biblical church that's been around a while, and you start tracing what God has done through that place all over the planet, it can be pretty awe-inspiring. For another, if you just think about all that God's done to even put the church together, it's pretty obvious that it's an important institution. There is a lot that goes into this, like election, before the foundation of the world, God had this planned. Adoption, redemption, inspiration of the scriptures, proclamation, providence, You start looking at all that God did just to make one local church, and it's pretty obvious that we need to think about what we're here for. What does God want from us? What are we supposed to do? What are some of our basic responsibilities? 
And those are important questions because that's how you start putting a vision together, actually. Uh, not with your vision, but what is God's vision for the local church? Because who cares what I want in a local church, right? What does God want in a local church? And there are a couple different things we could focus on if we had time in order to, to answer that. Like one thing we could talk about, for example, is the importance of gathering together. What is a local church supposed to do? We're supposed to gather. And I don't even need to spend a lot of time proving that or demonstrating that because that's like literally what the word church means. It's a gathering. And so if someone asks you what is the vision for the local church, you could talk about the importance of getting together every week as God's people to hear God's word, to be reminded of what God has done through Jesus, to worship God, to build each other up. And I know you sometimes say that, what's your vision for the local church? We want to get together and hear the Bible. <laughs> we, want to, we want to get together a lot and sing praises. And people, it feels like sometimes we'll look at you and sort of with glazed eyes ask, but I said, what's your vision? <laughs> because they want something that, that looks big. And I was uh, telling Marta the other day, I don't know when being faithful to the ordinary means of grace became something that didn't seem exciting to people. But it's a big part of why we exist. We want to get this right or we get nothing right. We gather to worship God and to hear from God. But we don't just gather once a week. We, we gather to grow. And by grow, I mean change. What are we doing? Why are we here? The church is for helping you become more like Jesus. That's why we exist. When you're saved, you are forgiven and you're changed. You're radically changed, but you're not perfect in practice at all. You've got a long way to go to become who you are. And this is part of why God made the church. You can read Ephesians 4.15. We will preach on Ephesians 4 in weeks to come. But Jesus came to earth. Paul says Jesus ascended to heaven. Jesus gave gifts to the church to help you grow. Quoting Paul, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, that's us, that's the members of the church. God gives pastors and teachers to the church to equip you for the work of the ministry, which in essence is this, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And growing up like that is a big priority in our lives as Christians. There's a sense in which you can say it's the most important priority. The most important priority in your life as a Christian is holiness to be holy like Jesus. That is the most important priority. I was somewhere last week, last Sunday, and I preached on Philippians chapter three, where Paul said, one thing I do, listen to this, one thing, I press on for the goal of the prize of the upward call. And the upward call is your salvation. And basically what he's talking about there is being glorified with Jesus. And Paul's saying, since that is God's goal for me in the future, being glorified with Jesus, being made like Jesus, that is my goal right now. The one thing that I am pursuing is becoming more like Jesus. And that has to be our one thing too as a church. The most important priority is becoming holy like Jesus. And 
one of the primary ways God has planned to help that happen in your life, to help you pursue that goal is local churches, which of course at CBC is why we do a lot of what we do. It's not just so you can have more information. We are not here to be the smartest people who can argue the theology best. We are here to grow, to know Jesus Christ and to become like him, which is of course one of the reasons we make a big deal out of these care groups, these smaller little groups that meet throughout the week because while hopefully we're learning a lot about God here on Sundays, we all know the danger of it going in one ear and out the other. And so we make a priority out of meeting week after week to take what we learned and talk a little more specifically about how we can apply it to our everyday lives because we wanna be a place where people grow, where they change. And you can highlight that word change or, or grow because that means we're not all there automatically. If I say we want this to be a place where you can grow, that assumes you need to grow. If I say we want to be a place where you change, that assumes you need to change. In fact, I, I really think one of the marks of an immature Christian and even a dying church, honestly, is thinking you've arrived and you don't have much room for improvement spiritually. In Isaiah 66, 2, God says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Humble, contrite in spirit people are not people who think they've arrived. Now, of course, just knowing you need to improve doesn't mean you're improving. There's another step, but you're not even gonna make it to that other step unless you realize you're needing to grow. I was sitting down with uh, someone named Bob Provost this past week, and he's the father of a friend of mine, Rob Provost. Some of you know Rob. And Bob Provost is the president of the Slavic Gospel Association, and he's been used in all kinds of ways. He's got this great little book, actually, on the um, tearing down of the wall in Berlin and how God used the church in Russia to do that. Amazing stories. And he's like 80 or something. And someone asked at the conference, which area do you need to grow in most? loving people or speaking the truth. And we were sitting at a table, Bob was there, and we're supposed to go around and answer. And he was the first one to answer. And you know what he said he needed to grow in? Which area? I loved it. He said both. <laughs> and I love that because here he's this really obviously godly man. And yet, you know, part of why he's so godly is because he knows he hasn't arrived. He needs to grow. He always needs to grow. There's a hunger in godly people. They want to be more godly, which is part of why they're so committed to the local church, why we're so committed. Personally, we want to grow. And then corporately, we want to help others be growing as well, which again assumes we should not expect church to be a place where everybody has it all together, where, where people never sin, a place where people are always operating at peak spiritual performance. In fact, if you look at a church and you say, you know, everybody there is fully equipped and thoroughly trained. There is nobody there who is spiritual babies. If you look at a church and you say that, then you have to ask, are they really? Because what are they doing? That's like a hospital with no sick people. That's like a school with no students. I mean, this is part of what a church is for. It's for helping people grow. 
And this is part of what growing people want to do. One mark of a growing person is that they're always on the lookout because they want to help others grow. I can't imagine meeting a, a good doctor, a doctor who's a really good doctor, who's trained in ways that other people are not, who's happy that he never has any patients. Well, I guess I can imagine it, I, but something's, something's wrong, right? Because doctors exist for patients. That's why you're a doctor. And if you've been given the privilege of being chosen by God, gifted with the Holy Spirit, taught God's word, you are here to help others grow. That is a good thing. And that growth, again, is urgent. We need to grow. It is important we become a place filled with people whose lives look different than the culture around them. When we were in Africa, we would often go out witnessing, and people had heard the gospel a lot of times where we were. And so there would sometimes be a glazed overlook when we were witnessing, like, yeah, I already know that. I know what you're talking about. But, you know, then we started having people into our homes and we started developing friendships with people who were of different races. And those same people started asking questions. And part of the reason why was because they were so used to a certain cultural way of relating. And when they saw the gospel transform that way of relating to people, they started wanting to hear what we were actually saying. And that's one of my big prayers for us here at CBC. I read a, a book title the other day. I think it was about a group of organic farmers or something who had gone off the grid, actually. But the book title I liked, it was A Different Kind of Life. And that's what we're wanting people to see as they look at the church, a different kind of life. We're not longing for them to say, wow, you know, there's a lot of people that get together every week there in that building because they could see that at a movie theater, at least pre-COVID they could. But we're hoping that when they see us, they're seeing people who are becoming more and more like Jesus, whose lives match up with a whole different view of reality. First Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12, this would be a great passage I could have exposited for a vision for the church, actually 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, but I love this here. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that's who you are, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, put off sinful desires, which wage war against the soul. So the negative, fighting, sinful desires, but positive, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's our vision, God glorifying gatherings. And so, of course, we have to think about how to make our gatherings as God glorifying as possible and growing. We have to think about how to best help each other grow. And we could talk about that for a while, I'm sure, and I guess I already have, but I'm really wanting to emphasize a third responsibility today. We, we go. This year at CBC, that's what I want to highlight. We go. And go is a good word because it's got a G. Gather, grow, go. So maybe you'll remember. But I'm not talking about just going anywhere. I'm talking about personally taking the initiative to make disciples. And kids, if you're listening, that's the word you're going to listen for. I know my wife isn't here, but I have the bag of candy. I forgot it, but fortunately, Mrs. Mackler didn't. Uh, disciples. We're we want to go and make disciples. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the, the Great Commission. You can turn there if you haven't already. 
because this is the key text. Jesus came to them and said, and this is after Jesus died, after Jesus rose, before Jesus goes to heaven, he charges his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And make disciples is the really big command there. You go in order to make disciples. So if you ask, what's the dream for us at CBC? What are you putting an emphasis on this year? It's glorifying God by obeying that command together, to go and to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That is like a mission statement for us as a church. And what we're talking about is not just being passive. I heard a, a story the other day about someone who got on a plane. This was Bob Provost, actually. He sat down on an airplane, and even before he said anything, like he, he did not say a word, even before he said anything, the guy next to him looked over at him and, and said, I just want to tell you that I'm lost and I need help, which is awesome and amazing. And we kind of all wish it worked that way most of the time. We could just go out there in the world and sort of smile and be nice and do our thing and people are gonna start wanting to know about Jesus, but that's not usually how it works. I'm talking about taking the initiative, going and developing real, sincere friendships with people to help them first know Jesus and then live for Jesus and then equip them so they can do the same with other people which is what discipleship is, basically. And we've been talking about this at our care group leader training meetings. What is discipleship? What does it mean to make disciples? It is intentional friendship with a spiritual goal. It is friendship with the goal of helping someone know Jesus, and if they know Jesus, helping them live the way Jesus wants them to live in their day-to-day -day life. And in Jesus' words, if you look down at Matthew 28, he explains what it means to make disciples. First, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And if you're baptizing them, that assumes you've shared the gospel first, you have seen them converted, and then you baptize them after they're converted. And baptism in the early church was almost like membership class. It was basically entrance into the local church. And then second, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, sharing the gospel, helping them identify with a local church, and then teaching them how to obey Jesus in every area of life. The responsibility doesn't end once I shared the gospel and you embraced it. Now I need to help you understand how to put the truth into practice, and that's discipleship. And we're saying that's essential. We want to help you pursue these kinds of friendships with other people. And again, you're hearing me say the word pursue, right? Go. If you ever wonder, what am I supposed to do as a member of Cornerstone Bible Church? How can I get involved? And you ask me, one big thing I would say is get out of your comfort zone and take a step towards making these kinds of friendships. In fact, I would rather you serve that way than do almost anything else. I'm hoping it will become normal here for me and you, and I need to grow in this, but for all of us to be looking to get together with people to talk about God and to talk about their lives and to help them come to the place where they're doing that with other people as well. That's 
That's what, and I don't think it's hard to show you why either. The what is make disciples. The why, if we go back to Matthew 28, is the fact that it is a command from King Jesus. There's a, a lot of reasons we could give as to why this is important, but here Jesus says, all authority has been given me on heaven and earth. And that's actually a direct quote almost from a passage in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7 which it's like a hyperlink back to Daniel chapter 7, which is all about God's great plan for the universe and how he's going to exalt the Son of Man and install him as king and cause everyone everywhere to worship him. And after Jesus' ascension, we see God taking a big step in accomplishing that plan. And he exalts Jesus to his right hand and he puts him in charge of everything. And yet we know more's coming. Jesus isn't staying in heaven forever. He's coming back to defeat his enemies, to reverse the curse, to establish his kingdom. And because we know Jesus is God's appointed king of the universe, we take seriously his command to go and make disciples. As Someone once said, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, it is a command to be obeyed, a command from King Jesus who is coming back. And obviously, I know if you, if you look down that Jesus is speaking first to the 11 apostles here in Matthew 28, and so sometimes people will say, well, it's not a command for us. But if you look closer, one of the things he tells them is that they're to teach people to observe all that he commanded them, to obey all the commands that he gave the disciples, and this is one of the commands he gave them, to make disciples. Plus, the promise he gives at the end extends beyond the original 11. If you look at the second half of verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus assumes people are going to be reading this later. And if we go on and we look at the book of Acts, we see it's not just the 11 who are doing this. The whole church is going out and preaching Jesus. In fact, one of uh, my favorite passages in this regard, I was just listening to Mark Lloyd-Jones preach on this this morning, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were scattered throughout the world, obeying this command in Matthew 28. And you know who the people who were scattered were? It wasn't the apostles. At that point, they were back in Jerusalem. Those who were scattered were everyday, ordinary members of the local church. The gospel was spread throughout the world first by these everyday, ordinary members of the local church as they were scattered as refugees, probably being brought into people's homes, having to live in their homes because they had nowhere else to go, as they're in these homes talking to the people who were showing them hospitality about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. This isn't just a command for the first disciples, it's a command for every disciple. Disciples are to make disciples, that's what disciples do. And if you need more proof, read the rest of the New Testament. It's clear, if you follow Jesus, you have a responsibility to tell other people about Jesus and help others learn to follow Jesus. And so you ask, what are we doing this year? What's our vision? I hope you're hearing me say this a lot. Make disciples, meaning preach the gospel to those who don't know Jesus and help those who do know Jesus obey him. Why? It's a command, and there are lots of other reasons as well, but we'll stick to that one for now because the main thing I want to talk to you about is how. Because that's where I think we sometimes get stuck. We know it's a command, the Great Commission. We barely even need to open our Bibles there. If we've been in church for a while, we're pretty familiar with this. 
and we know it's important, but how do we actually do that as a church? And the way I want to show you how to make disciples is by watching one of the greatest disciple makers of all time at work, probably the second greatest. The first is Jesus, obviously, and maybe the, the second would be Paul, and we can't get in a time machine and travel back and be with Paul, but we do get a number of really good pictures of how he went about making disciples, and this is one of the reasons he tells us so much about himself, actually, so we could imitate him as he imitated Christ. And today, and, and maybe next week as well, I want to look at Paul and show you eight things you must do if you're going to play a part in our mission as a church to make disciples. And this is going to be really simple. But first, what does Paul do? He tells other people the gospel. <laughs> do you tell other people the gospel? That's kind of obvious, but we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2 to learn from Paul. And you can turn there, but before there ever was a letter to the Thessalonians, there was Paul in Thessalonica talking to people about Jesus and what Jesus did. If you want to read the story, Isaiah did. It's in Acts 17. Paul had been released from prison in a place called Philippi. And he had a few friends who traveled with him to Thessalonica. And when they got there, after having been in prison for preaching the gospel, Luke tells us, what did Paul do next? He said, you know, I just got out of prison for preaching the gospel. Why don't I go preach the gospel? And so he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, which doesn't surprise us reading that because that's just what Paul did, right? Like literally over and over and over, anytime he got to a new city, he looked for ways to meet with unbelievers and tell them about Jesus. In fact, later on in Acts 17 is one of my favorite stories because Paul is like, run, people are chasing Paul, running him out of cities, like mobs, and he gets to Athens after this has happened. He gets to Athens, and you know, if I had been like thrown in prison, chased out of cities, for preaching the gospel, I get to Athens, you know what I'm probably thinking? I'm probably thinking about writing my like autobiography or something, you know, sitting in the hotel and, and just taking a break. But what is Paul doing in Athens after he's chased out of city, the city, just waiting really for Timothy to come? He is so stirred in his spirit as he watches these people worshiping idols that he's got to get out there and share the gospel. And so, of course, we're not surprised as we see Paul sharing the gospel. And yet, if we're going to make disciples, if that's what we're going to do as a church, we need to find ways to do the same thing. We need to engage with lost people, unbelievers, about Jesus. And I, I don't know where you're at in terms of doing this on a regular basis, but one of the missions uh, speakers at the conference uh, I was at was talking about one of his concerns for the church, and it resonated with me. I'm concerned about it as well in my own life and for the church, and that's the problem of isolation. And what he meant is that many people in churches are isolated from unbelievers. And of course, it's not that they don't know unbelievers. They work with them all the time. 
but it's that they don't have many real relationships with people who don't know Jesus. And so if you ask them something as simple as, who are you praying for to know Jesus? Like, who are your top five people who you're praying for to know Jesus? They don't have many people to talk about beyond their family. And family's good, of course. But the thing is, we've got this great gospel, this message of eternal life that literally reveals God's plan for the universe. We've got the one message that can deal with man's fundamental problem. And we, as believers, are the only people on the planet who have it and who have been given the mission by God of proclaiming it. And so we've got to be thinking about how we can take it out to as many people as we can. And taking it out to as many people as we can starts with knowing some unbelievers. Because look, when I talk about going and telling people the gospel, I know the first thing that comes into a lot of our minds is street evangelism or something like that. And that's good. If you, if you can talk to people you'll never see again, that's fine. But I'm actually talking about a step before that. I want us to learn to engage with, with people we interact with on a regular basis that we know and care about, which means we need to find ways of breaking out of our bubble a little and pursue un relationships with unbelievers with the prayer of getting to the place where we can talk to them about the gospel. I heard someone say recently, the problem for a lot of us is not first making disciples, it's making friendships. And I think that's a pretty good point because look, if you really are a Christian and you're gathering together with God's people and you're growing, you love Jesus. That's in your heart. You got like worship just starting to pop out. And so if you get together with unbelievers, it's gonna be uncomfortable at some point. Your worlds are so different. Your priorities are so different. What is so important to you as a Christian is so different. I mean, if you get together with unbelievers and you're like, this is awesome. We have so much in common. We love all the same things. Maybe it's because you are an unbeliever. So it's, it's not necessarily going to be easy to engage. And if you do, it's because ultimately you want to talk about Jesus and you know that people will usually listen longer and more carefully to someone that they know loves them, right? Which is why I want to find ways together to engage, to develop some, some initial kinds of friendships with people who don't know Jesus. And again, I, I don't want you to hear me wrong because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's not just developing relationships to play video games or something like the gospel. We've got to preach a message and that message is powerful. And so if you decide one day to take a bullhorn and like go down to University of uh, California, Irvine, and just walk through the campus quoting gospel verses, God can use that. It's a little different, and you'll probably be thrown in jail or something, and it's not a method I would normally recommend, but God can use that. But normally, I would think if you're going to tell someone that they're going to hell, it means more if they know you love them, and you have some sort of relationship, which is tricky for me as a pastor, personally. It's tricky developing these kinds of relationships, and I think that's part of why we sometimes have problems in evangelism in local churches. We need examples, and sometimes we, we haven't been examples as pastors, and I, I've been thinking about how do I do this, because in Africa, it was kind of 
easy, actually, but moving here with COVID and being a pastor, I need to find ways not just to get in one and done conversations with people about Jesus, but also to develop a kind of a longer relationship with people who I'll see over and over again to talk to them about Jesus. And, and yet also, I think that's how we can help each other because we don't have to fish alone. We're partners working together for the advancement of the gospel. And I know we're not all the Apostle Paul here, of course, but we've got a team and we've got all kinds of gifts. And so we don't have to go fishing by ourselves. That means we don't have to do evangelism by ourselves. We wanna to partner together. And so maybe some of you are just good at making contacts. You like walk into McDonald's and by the time you walk out, like everybody's chanting your name or something. Others are good at sticking with people and others are good at answering questions. But whatever you're good at, and however we do this, we've got to do this. This is a big part of why we're still on the planet. I want us, I want to be, and I want us to be a church that, lo that loves sinners and longs to see them transformed by the gospel of Christ. And as a result, is not just sitting back, but getting together and dreaming and making plans to take the gospel out and not just making plans, but doing it. And I know it's gonna be a process but honestly, I think we should be disappointed if we look back 10 years from now, and as a church, we haven't been actively and regularly and consistently finding ways to get in there with people who don't know Jesus, love them, and tell them the gospel because it's part of the Great Commission, because we love Jesus, we want others to know him, we're happy in Jesus, and we want others to be able to have a relationship with him as well, and because how else are they gonna hear about him? We're the ones with this message. And we know, of course, that we can't measure how successful we are by results because God is sovereign and so he is in control. And yet at the same time, we are the means he's using to get the gospel out. And so we need to try. The sovereignty of God is not an excuse for a lack of passion for sharing the gospel. It's supposed to be motivation. Who understood the sovereignty of God best in scripture? Jesus. And yet what's he doing as he enters Jerusalem knowing they rejected him? He's weeping. Next to Jesus, probably again, who knew the sovereignty of God best in the scripture? Maybe Paul. What does he say about the enemies of the gospel of Christ in Philippians chapter three? Listen to this. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And we're going the opposite direction of Jesus and Paul if we're learning more and more and growing less and less concerned about the lost. And we know, of course, there are gonna be times that we're out there and we're trying and not much seems to be happening. But you know what? There are also gonna be times where it's obvious that God is doing something way beyond what we could do. And that's part of what excites us. You don't know what's gonna happen. You can't just say it's impossible. You start reading church history and there have been lots of times where something had never happened before. It looked impossible and then God acted and it happened. There's a great book by J.C. Ryle about some of the revivals that took place in England. And as he talks about those revivals, he begins by describing the state of England before those revivals. And it sounds like America today. And God used those revivals and amazing things happened in the year, those years. And 
So we don't get overly discouraged when we look around and it seems so dark because we know God can do things in people's lives that we would never have thought possible. And that's part of what Paul's rejoicing about in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, actually. And this was supposed to be our text when I started out this week, but I spent so much time talking, we don't have much time left. But you can see how he begins if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We, we give thanks to you, Paul says, we give thanks to God, excuse me, always for all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And Paul's just reflecting back here, and it's like he's saying, wow, look at you. God totally changed you, and we saw it in your life. And you know, we even knew something was happening as we were sharing, the, sharing with you because the gospel wasn't coming just with logic and ideas and words. We could see the power of God at work and, and the Holy Spirit at work in you, and God granted us an unusual certainty about how the gospel was impacting you as we shared it with you. I like how Paul puts it over in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says there, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And here it is. This is the part I love. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. And that's just a beautiful description of the gospel message. It is the word of truth, but it also does something. It bears fruit and it grows. It's like it's alive, this message, and we can't forget that or allow other people to cause us to doubt it. We have got a powerful message. I heard someone say something a while back that's really been helpful for me. He said, don't believe everything an unbeliever is telling you. And he was talking about witnesses. And the reality is there are going to be a lot of unbelievers out there who say all kinds of lies about the gospel. And one of the big lies is that it's just another message. It doesn't do anything. Even as they're hearing it, they might be like, ah, that's nothing. That's, that's nonsense. And sometimes we listen to them. And, and we're like, I guess the gospel isn't doing anything. But that's a lie. The gospel, Paul says, is the power of God for salvation. And there are plenty of evidences of that all throughout history. Like here with the Thessalonians. So look, if all there was to sharing the gospel was us talking, obviously it would get pretty discouraging after a while. But there's more. God is at work in this world and in people's lives, and he is at work saving people. And so if you really want to participate in the great work God's doing, you should make a priority out of relying on the Holy Spirit, like Paul, on getting to know unbelievers and entering into conversations with them so you can tell them about Jesus. Go. That's where discipleship begins. If we're going to make disciples who make disciples, we have to get out there and tell people the gospel. That's one characteristic. And I had seven more written down, so we'll continue this next week, maybe. <laughs> but at least let me give you a second characteristic. 
He shares the gospel. I'm still trying to figure out whether we should go back to the Old Testament series or continue this series, but at least I'll give you this, uh, this one other characteristic. He shares the gospel. He depends on God. And these are some of the basics, I know, but it's only, I'm covering some of the basics because sometimes when we think about vision, we think about something really fancy, like what is the church gonna do for me? No, we are the church. What are we supposed to do? We're gonna disciple. And that sometimes intimidates us because when we think about discipleship, we think about something really professional or even maybe more specifically, we think about some kind of program. Like, okay, we're into discipleship, so this is going to be the structure that we're going to put in place this year, and we're really excited about it. And, and structure and programs are good, but there's something essential that comes before, because the reality is the best kind of discipleship isn't going to come through some sort of top-down, one, two, three program, as much as it does through holy individuals. And one of the characteristics of the kind of people who make an impact on others is that they're not relying on human programs or skills or their own education to change people, but on the power of God. And we see that in Paul as he begins talking to the Thessalonians in verse 2. If you just look again, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. And this is so obvious, but why does Paul give thanks? to God. He gives thanks because when you're giving thanks, what are you doing? You're giving credit to someone for whatever you're thanking them about. And when Paul looks at these astounding results in the Thessalonians' lives, he didn't see it as something that came because of him and his amazing knowledge, but instead because of God, which is why he continued to labor for the Thessalonians' good in prayer. He says, mentioning you in our prayers. And this is important because sometimes you'll hear people say they can't get involved in discipleship because they're not all that educated or important or whatever. And we tend to think so professionally, like it's the professionals who do that. And this is where the church can get stuck. If the only people who can disciple are people who went to six years of graduate school, there aren't going to be a lot of people who are able to do much. And it's good to get training, and we want to provide training. I'm thankful for all the training I've received. I'm not minimizing that. But it's important to remember the results from discipleship are not ultimately going to come from somebody's ability or even education, but from God's work in a person's life. I remember again in Africa, and I'm always talking Africa, but because I was a pastor, people sometimes would want me to pray for them, which was nice, but it was a little weird sometimes too, because they would sometimes act like my prayers had special powers or something. I remember a time I was picking someone up in the inner city, and he was getting into my car, and it was a little dangerous, and so there were policemen there, and the policemen were a little careful, and so they saw this guy getting into my car, and the policeman ran over, and then he saw me. And he's like, oh, and because uh, I didn't look like the people getting in my car. And I told him I was a pastor, and his whole attitude changed at that moment. And he was like, oh, that's so good. You're a pastor. And he even said, oh, this is even better. You're a white pastor. <laughs> so there was something strange going on there. But he said, you're white, and you're a pastor. This policeman, he said, can you pray for me? And I was like, sure, I'll always pray. But you know, God doesn't hear my prayers because of my skin color or because I'm a pastor. And you know, we don't think like that here, obviously, 
and I'm glad. But we do sometimes act a little like that when it comes to discipleship opportunities. When we say, I can't do that because I'm not a pastor. And of course, again, we're glad for gifted people and we recognize the benefits of training. But at the same time, we realize it's not actually about the person, it's about God. And so if he expects us as a church to develop relationships with the goal of helping people change and become more like Jesus, if Jesus commands us make disciples, then he can give us the ability to do that. And I think the place where many of us need to start is by getting down on our knees and crying out to God for help. We want to be people who depend on God because really, you know, everything that we want to do as a church is impossible for us to do, whether we're professionals, whether we're trained or not. I mean, maybe we can build buildings or raise money, but we can't change people's heart, hearts. We, we can't produce spiritual growth. And so we need to be praying as individuals, but also as a group, we need to be praying, which is part of why we started that monthly meeting for prayer as a church. That's one of our most important meetings. Because if we're gonna effectively make disciples who make disciples, it's not gonna come from a program, it's gonna be a work of God. And so like Paul, we should constantly be asking God. I know sometimes in the past, I've, I've been a little skeptical when people talk about vision and dreaming and, and they talk about it in such big ways because uh, sometimes big things to us aren't really that big to God. And because sometimes when you get close to those things people are saying are big, they're not always as exciting as they sounded from far away. And, and because it's so easy to start wanting big things to happen for the wrong reasons. But at the same time, this is God we're talking about. This is the gospel we're talking about. And this is the church that belongs to him. And so we should be wanting good things. And we should be striving for good things. And we should even be attempting great things because through God, more can happen than we could possibly imagine sitting here. Last week at the conference, someone gave a, a short biography of, of Count Nicholas Zinzendorf. Have you heard of Count Nicholas? He would actually be pretty disappointed if you heard of him because his life's motto was preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. They actually had that motto up there with his name under it, and I thought, poor guy, <laughs> you know, he should leave his name off. He, he literally said he wanted to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten, then you put his name under the quote. But, and I guess I'm not helping his cause here, but he was part of the Moravian movement back in the 1700s, and that's something you should read about. It was this small group of people, I think there was like 300 of them or something at first, and they ended up starting one of the greatest missionary movements of all time. There's even a story about uh, these two men who sold themselves into slavery uh, for the purpose of reaching slaves with the gospel. It's, it's an awesome story. And you know, it all started, they were actually having a conflict in the, in the group. And then uh, they tried to deal with the conflict biblically. And as they were dealing with the conflict, they thought what we should do is commit ourselves to prayer and they began a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week prayer meeting. So different members would take one hour a week to pray until they covered all the air hours of the week and all the days of the week. And you know how long that prayer meeting lasted? It lasted for 112 years. That's a long time. And out of that prayer meeting, they started joining together to send missionaries. And historians who trace this kind of stuff point out connections between those Moravians, the start of the Wesleyan revival, Methodism, the beginnings of the real Christian movement in England, which led thing, to things like the abolition of slavery. And I'm just saying, 
what do we want to do this year, next year, every year? What's our vision? We'll talk about uh, this some more tonight. But we want to gather, we want to get together and hear God's word and sing and pray and worship God as best as we can. And we want to grow, we want to change, we want to show the world what it looks like to believe the gospel through the way we live. And we want to go. We want to make disciples, not be passive, just waiting till the fish jump in the boat. But going, how? At the very least, helping each other find ways to start relationships, to engage in conversations about the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. And doing that, not proudly, not thinking we're so great, but depending on God to use his gospel to make Jesus look great by us being obedient. And we're praying that as we do that, we will see people converted and changed and become disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Let's pray. Lord, your vision for the the church is not really complicated. But like little children sometimes, Lord, we don't want to obey or we just get so distracted running this way or that. And so we ask you, help us. Lord, some of us, like me, we, we just feel so inadequate, but we know you are adequate. We are weak, but you are strong. Lord, you're, you've done so much in our lives. Every, every single moment of our life, we look, it's like grace. Lord, you've, you've changed us. We've had such sweet experiences with you, enjoying you, enjoying your word. Lord, we we get to know you. We want other people to experience this. We want to see you glorified through their submission. And we want to see them converted and changed and discipled. We want to be a local church that really, Lord, maybe doesn't look like much to the world, but a local church where you're working in extraordinary ways. As we get on our knees and depend on you, And we go out and obey you. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.